Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel 38, where Paul was reading for us earlier. We are currently in between the second and third division of the book of Revelation. We finished part one, the first division, which is Revelation one. Uh, We finished chapters two and three, which is the seven letters to the seven churches. And um, that is the second division of the book of Revelation. And before we go into the third division with chapter four, verse one, um, I want to take a couple weeks and interject what I believe is going to happen uh, between the second division and the third division. And um, I'll let this study this morning speak for itself. Um, How we know, we call Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 38 and 39. 38 is a war, 39 is a cleanup. Um, People have different views on when this battle takes place. I hold to the conviction that we can know that the Ezekiel 38 war is at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, which is what we're getting into. As soon as we get to chapter 6, verse 1, and go through 16, there is a seven-year period of time that we call the time of Jacob's trouble, um, the 70th week of Daniel, the great indignation, some call it the tribulation. Whatever, I believe that um, Ezekiel 38 war has to be at the beginning of this seven-year period of time. And if you look at chapter 39, I will explain why I hold to that conviction. So Ezekiel 39, let's pick it up in verse six. This is actually the cleanup after the Lord. In verse six, it says, I will send fire on Magog and on those who live securely in the coastlands, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. So, I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Verse nine, then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, uh, javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them. Notice it says, for seven years. Ezekiel 38 cannot be the Battle of Armageddon because immediately after the Battle of Armageddon, we'll see when we get to Daniel chapter 12, that there is a 45-day period of time from when Jesus actually returns. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot down Matthew 25 because it says immediately after the days of those tribulation that he's going to judge the nations. And it happens to be a 45-day period of time and then we enter into the thousand-year millennial reign. You only have 45 days there. You don't have seven years. But it fits perfectly if this battle in Ezekiel 38, takes place at the very beginning, and then it's over very, very quickly, as we're gonna find out this morning. We have a set, why a seven-year period of time? So I think the scriptures speak for themselves that this is gonna be part of the tribulation is actually the cleaning up the after effects of the war that we're going to be studying this morning. Um, Ezekiel 38 describes the war. But in order for Israel, of course, to be back in the land, um, they have to be back in the land. (laughs) Good place for an amen, right? Okay, so let's go back to 36 and 37 because 36 and 37 is a prophecy of them coming back into the land so they're not there yet. Um, I'm only going to count out a couple verses. I would encourage you to read the full chapter because both 36 and 37 are basically saying the same thing. I'll just quote a couple verses so you can get the feel. Um, Ezekiel 36, verse 33. 
The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. And so they will say the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined cities and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. So in these verses here, let's continue on, read the rest of the chapter. Uh, Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, uh, like a flock offered as a holy sacrifice, like the flocks of Jerusalem on its feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. Just a little phrase here. Um, then they shall know that I am the Lord, occurs some 52 times in the book of Ezekiel. Well, the land has been desolate. It's been desolate, and yet what's prophesied here, the land that was in desolation has become like the Garden of Eden. Um, It's the fourth largest producer of fruit in the entire world, and Israel's no bigger than the state of New Jersey and how they've drained the swamps and um, planted reforestation. Um, as long as Gideon Sunday Club will bring this up, every once in a while somebody will send me a card and they'll have in it a thank you note for something or whatever and they're planting a tree in Israel, either that and, or they've bought so many Bibles in my name for the Gideons. And it's just a sweet way of saying thank you. And um, uh, as a result, Israel was totally barren. They drained the swamps. And it is one of the most productive, fertile lands um, in the world today. So let's go out from that. It was prophesied. You were desolate, but you're going to be like the Garden of Eden. Check it off, gang. That's happened. All right, now in chapter 37, we have two different um, stories that really are going to imply the same thing. And I'm just going to quote for you verses 1 through 10. It's called The Vision of Dry Bones. And the idea here is that um, they were dispersed, and as a result of being dispersed, um, Ezekiel is told to go and prophesy to this valley that's full of bones, the valley of the dry bones. And then he asks the question, can these bones live again? And so the Lord tells Ezekiel to prophesy, verse 10, he says, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in an exceedingly great army. So he said to me, son of man, These bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves, cause you to come up from your graves, and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you should know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you from your graves. So it's a picture, but the idea is for 2,000 years, they've been dispersed. That's where they get the name, the wandering Jews. They wandered the world. But now the prophecy is telling us he's going to bring them back into the land. Now, the way this unfolded was... Um, in the early 1900s. So for almost 2,000 years, there was no movement for this to take place. But here's a catalyst that started it. In the early 1900s, there was a declaration that's called the Bellflower Declaration. 
It was a public statement issued by the British government in 1917 during the First World War. They announced support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people, then occupied by the Ottoman Empire region. Now this is gonna play into our study this morning. So the, the Turkish, Turkish Ottoman Empire is gonna play into our study this morning. They had it before World War I. Um, with a small minority Jewish population, the declaration was contained in a letter dated November 2nd, 1917, uh, from the United Kingdom Foreign Secretary Arthur Bellflower to Lord Rothschild, a leader of the British Jewish community for transmission to the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland. The text of the declaration was published in the press on November 9th, 1917. And all of a sudden, because of this declaration, they started going back to the land of Israel. First a trickle, then a little bit more. And then fast forward to May 14th, 1948, and David Ben-Gurion declares the land of Israel a nation. It happened in one day. If you're taking notes, this fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 66, verse eight. Isaiah says, who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. They've been there now for 72 years. And they've made the land just like it says. You can check off 36. You can check off 37. And my friends, we're getting really close to checking off 38. And that's what our Bible study is about this morning. So with that little bit of a background, out of the land, desolate, they come back, they turn it into something that's incredibly beautiful and desirable and envious for a lot of the countries that surround it. Brings us to our first three verses of Ezekiel chapter 38. This has not yet been fulfilled. I like to say we're living between chapters 37 and 38, time-wise. Verse one, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Let's talk about this figurehead and Gog as a ruler. Gog is a word for ruler meaning roof, which actually means the man on top. I can't think of a better name for a dictator than Gog. If he's not on the top, he's not a dictator. And if he is on top, he is a dictator. Gog means head. It is the Hebrew word rosh, which means head. Dean Stanley, in his exhaustive history of the Eastern Church, published half a century ago, has a note founded on Jesenus, the great Hebrew scholar, to the effect that the word rosh should be Russia. Then Dean Stanley adds that it is the only reference to a modern nation in the entire Old Testament. This is indeed remarkable. Bishop Lowler made the statement that Rosh, taken as a proper name in Ezekiel, signifies the inhabitants of the Scythian uh, who came from modern Russia derived their name. You see, Russia was first called um, Muscovy, derived from Meshach, Ivan the, the fourth, a czar of Russia, who was called Ivan the Terrible, came to the Muscovite throne in 1533. He was the first one to assume the, the title of czar, which was the first time the title was used. 
I am sure you detect that the name Meshach and Tubal certainly sound like Moscow or Tobolsky. Tobolsky is way over uh, by uh, Siberia. The linguistic phenomena clearly leads us to believe that Ezekiel is talking about Russia in this passage. Now here's where things begin to get interesting for me. Just as a result of what's happened from the first part of the year up till yesterday, things are unfolding. I'm sort of glad I wasn't here last week because I'm gonna be adding things that have happened between now and then that if I would have given this study last week, they would have happened during the week and that's how fast things are unfolding. Let's talk about Vladimir Putin first of all. How many of you are aware that since the first part of this year, he has become president of Russia for life. Is everybody aware of that? And now, um, I would give him the title of Gog. And I can fit his name in there very, very simply. Because he's directing to a person who has a title who's over everything like a czar. That wasn't the way it was at the end of last year. That's the way it is at the beginning of this year, that he has assumed this power, and it'll be for, it's in power for the next 36 years, which puts us, I believe, way out of here. But anyway, he's addressing this man with this title, and we find um, that this is something that has just come into play. Vladimir Putin, I believe, is Gog, and who is what's being referred to here. Now, in verses four through six, we have the main force here, and in verse seven, we're gonna find that Russia is gonna be a supplier to these other nations, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Um, He says, I will, verse four, I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaw and lead you out with all of your army horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers, shields, all of them handling swords. And then it gives the list. We have Persia, we have Ethiopia, we have Libya, and all of them with shields and arms, Gomer and all of its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north and all its troops, and many people are with you. Well, these are ancient names, and I'll give you the names of where they line up today. Much of our study is gonna be about Iran this morning. So 100, 100 years ago, Iran was called Persia. So the first one here, when it says Persia, the first on the list is Iran, after Russia. Then Ethiopia, or northern Africa, put in Kush. Um, then we have Gomar, which is Germany. And the other more important player that we have here is Turkey. And the change in their power structure within the last year also is very, very interesting to me. I'm gonna put up on a screen the leaders of these three countries of Russia, Iran, and Turkey. And we have them as Rouhani, Putin, and Erdogan. Rouhani is from Iran, Putin, Russia, Erdogan is now, um, I believe, the dictator of Turkey. And here we have a picture of all three of them. And all three of them are embedded right now and ready to go into action in the Middle East. This I got off the news yesterday. I'm talking the 18th of July, and I got it off of an Israeli website. So this is yesterday, and I'm quoting from um, a news source from Israel. The title reads, Israel-Iran conflict to be major Middle East issue in 2020. And then it goes on, I'll just read one sentence. Neither Iran or Israel may seek war, but a diplomatic breakdown after the U.S. pulled out of Iran nuclear deal, strategic errors and military buildups 
make a direct conflict, even an, even an inadvertent one more likely. That was yesterday. Well, I found another one that was breaking yesterday. And this one reads, Putin joins Turkey and Iran, Israel undermining the region's stability. July 18th, 2020. That was yesterday, gang. Now, next thing I'm gonna put up on the screen uh, is called, I get the breaking Israel news. If you wanna keep up, this would be a good one to write down. Um, And what we have here is the headline which says, analysis, 10 realistic ways the war of Gog and Magog can ignite tomorrow. And it gives 10 of them. For sake of time, I'm only gonna, I picked one of the 10 just to read this morning. And that is the Iran-Turkey versus Israel war. Uh, Could the Sunni and Shiite, let me just explain this a little bit because this interesting when you talk about Muslims and Arabs. In Iran, they're, they're Shiite, okay? And they're Muslims, but they're not Arabs. And that makes, they're, they're Persians actually. So that makes them unique. But when you go to Turkey, where they're Sunni, and um, they're Muslim also, but they're not Arabs, they're Turks. And the thing when you talk about them, um, they'll tell you nobody's a friend with a Turk except another Turk. (laughs) Turks get along with Turks and Turks really don't get along with anybody else. But what's interesting as we're gonna read in this chapter is what is Arab and also Sunni is Saudi Arabia. This is where Arabians are, but neither Turkey nor Iran are Arab, they're Muslim, but one's Turks and one, one are Persians. Is everybody tracking with me there? So ideally, they, really, they wouldn't get along with anything except their hatred for the people of Israel. And that hatred I want to show you this morning, and what I had cut out of my notes last week because we did Daniel chapter 10 on, on Wednesday night, which I do not think was a coincidence at all as it pertains to spiritual warfare, and we'll come and bring that back into Persia. So let me just read uh, one of the 10. Could the Sunni and Shiite superpowers of the Middle East unite in a joint effort to destroy Israel? Several top Middle East experts see it as a realistic scenario. Islamic expert Dr. Mordecai Kader noted that Turkey and Iran see themselves as a powerful, unified front that can stand against any other country in the world right now, whether it's Russia, the US, Israel, or Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, Middle East expert Seth Franzman notes that their cooperation in Syria and Iraq lay the groundwork for a potential joint strike against Jerusalem. Compounding the threat, official voice out of Tehran have threatened a retaliation for sabotage inflicted upon an Iranian nuclear site. Um, I've mentioned it, but um, this last month, and I was talking to Zev Eisner about this, because they're not coming openly out and saying it, that um, it was Israel that took out this nuclear facility. And I said, so Zev, what do you think? He says, of course you took it out. And we used American F-35s to do the job. So the common word on the street in Israel is they know, but that's old news. Uh, This is what happened this week. I'll get to it. Former Iranian diplomat Amir uh, Mosavi, Iran is prepared to retaliate for the Natanz nuclear facility explosion. America is no longer to be feared and they say it trembles before Iran. Now, I'm gonna put up on the screen um, the two flags, one from Israel and one from Iran. That's up next. And what has happened um, this month, on the 15th, I believe it was, 
burning ships in Iran add to a string of dozens of explosions and fires. So if you've been catching this on the news, it was one major fire that started and it burned seven other Iranian ships that were at port. And uh, neither side believe it's, both sides know what's going on. Israel is not coming out and saying, yes, we did it. Over the past several weeks, a series of, of mystery explosions have happened at very strategic, sensitive locations inside Iran. And it has become obvious that what we are wrestling, uh, witnessing, is not just a bunch of random accidents. For years, the Israeli government has pledged that the Iranians will never be allowed to develop nuclear weapons. And several of the sites where the mysterious explosions have been taken place have direct connections to Iran's nuclear program. For example, there was a very large explosion at Iran's Natanz uranium enrichment facility on July 2nd. That was this, this last month, this month. And it's being reported that some officials believe that the explosions was created by Israel. Well, like I said, I was talking to Zev, and he says, well, we did it with the F-35s. So Iran, this is the rhetoric that's going on between these two countries, and that's why you have the fists like this on the screen. Iran said if Israel annexes, so here's another thing that's putting all this pressure right now in the Middle East. The other breaking news is so many people want to return to Israel that they just don't have room for them. And now um, the big news is when are they going to annex Judea and Samaria and the West Bank? That's in the news. Now here's Iran's comment upon if they do that. And I'm quoting, they, they said if they do that, if they annex uh, Judah and Samaria and the West Bank, that this is crossing, um, Iran says, a red line and we will go to war. So now we have the political events unfolding. What I cut out of my notes last week, because I looked at them, I said, Dwight, you got way too many notes. <laughs> we are three o'clock in the afternoon. So I asked him, and I think that the Lord might have asked me because I think he wants this part of the Bible study. So let's bring in the spiritual warfare aspect of this. Now, if you weren't here on Wednesday night, I'm really gonna encourage you to get the DVD or go online and watch it. But I'm gonna have you turn with me to Daniel chapter 10 because this is, we're, tie, we're trying to tie in Daniel and the book of Revelation together. And the Bible study was primarily about spiritual warfare. And I will summarize because Daniel chapter 10 is all about Daniel praying and he's used to getting his prayers answered. His prayer was immediately answered in Daniel chapter nine. But now he wasn't getting an answer to his prayer so he doesn't eat. No fine food, I think it says in verse Three, because Daniel was in mourning for 21 days, three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food or meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself, means he didn't take a bath, uh, for three whole weeks. But then on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the side of the great river Tigris. Now, remember the word Tigris. The Tigris and Euphrates actually are close to one another. They both flow out out of Turkey and go through right up into Iraq and Iran. But this vision that Daniel's habit happens to be by the river Tigris. And we find um, that an angel appears, so let's jump down to verse uh, 10, and we find, um, let's read dirt. 10 through 13, then suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hand. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I have speak to you, and stand upright, for I, I have been sent to you. While he was still speaking the word to me, I stood trembling, 
And he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Is everybody following me? As soon as you started to pray, I was dispatched. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and then on on Wednesday night, we went into Ephesians. We talked about the different levels of authority in the angelic realm, both good and bad. And evidently, this prince of the kingdom of Persia, oh, isn't that interesting? What's Persia? Persia is Iran. Now, people have misused and misinterpreted what we call territorial spirits. But I can't get around this verse. Here it is clearly telling me that there's a very powerful angel that has the oversight of Iran or Persia. The, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. In other words, I couldn't get the message through. Why? The devil doesn't want the information that's going to be given to Daniel. And he was in that predicament until we read, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone with there with the king of Persia. So in other words, it wasn't until Michael shows up and evidently has more authority than the prince of Persia, which is a demonic spirit, and the message basically now gets through. I would have been here. I would have showed up a long time ago, but I was held up. What are you talking about, Dwight? I'm talking about spiritual warfare. And everybody's talking about equality and equal rights these days. And let me just state it for where we stand at Calvary Chapel. Uh, There's neither male nor female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. We're all the same. You're either a saved sinner or a lost sinner. Good place for an amen. So all people are the same. But if we want to talk about a real persecuted people more than any other people, it would have to be the Jewish people. Nobody else comes close. And with that, I'd like you to turn to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 12. And I'll quote Jude, verse 9. Because Michael shows up a couple times and he's always involved with warfare with angels. I'll quote the one, if you're taking notes, if if you weren't here on Wednesday night, it's Jude verse nine. It tells us that even Michael, and then it gives us his title, the archangel, dared not bring a railing accusation against Satan as they disputed over the body of Moses. Now when I read that, It's wanting me to ask more questions than it's giving me answers. We know that Moses died on Mount Nebo and that God buried him. Well, Jude tells us there was a tug of war going on between Michael and Lucifer over his body. What for? Inquiring minds want to know. I want to know. What's that all about? But if you're in chapter 12 of Revelation, we find, again, this is a spiritual aspect of what's really going on in the world right now. And the heart of it is Israel and its destruction. So I'm not gonna read all of this, but I'd like you to. Chapter 12, verse seven, it says, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. Long story short, Michael wins, Lucifer loses. He's cast to the earth, but notice what he does when he's on the earth. Go, it says in verse 12, the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And what does he do with that time? He goes after Israel. Of all the things he could do, we read in verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman. Who's the woman? Israel. And he went to make war with the rest of the offspring and to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, turn the page to chapter 16, and we do have the Battle of Armageddon. 
And when I, the reason I'm going here is um, I, th- I think most of the church today is painfully unaware of spiritual warfare. Um, and yet, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in high places. Amen? We wrestle the struggles we go through, some of the things that happen to us. Um, A a lot of times we don't get to see the veil pulled away like Job. And um, because he was a righteous man, where you been, Job? Where you been, Satan? Oh, just walking to and fro, you know, walking around the earth. Have you checked out Job? He's a righteous man. Uh, Prays for his kids every morning. And um, Lucifer says, well, of course. You got a hedge set about him. You've blessed him in every way. Take that hedge away from him and I'll show you what he's made out of. Who did uh, Lucifer want of all the disciples? Well, it was Simon Peter. You ever wonder why it was Simon Peter? Because Simon Peter has a big mouth. (laughs) And he's always talking, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But one day the Lord calls Peter over and says, Peter, I gotta tell you, Satan has asked for you. He wants to sift you. You ever feel like you're being sifted? And you ever feel like there's something going on but you quite can't put your finger on it but it's not right? Well, you're going through spiritual warfare. But the Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. And it also says greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But unless you know that biblically, you can't take out the shield of faith. You can't take out the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God equips us to know who's in charge and what authority that you have. And we should give him no time. And um, resisting is major here. All right, the reason I took you to this, this is the Battle of Armageddon, but I want you to show that there are demonic forces involved in bringing these nations together for this last great battle. I'm in chapter 16, uh, verse 12. Remember I told you to remember the Tigris River? Well, here we have the Euphrates in verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the ways of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. We're talking the battle of Armageddon. How do they get there? Demonic spirits stir them up. And the Euphrates is dried up. And we'll get into this next week in Daniel chapter 11 because this comes into play. Verse 15 is so unique and interesting to me for a lot of different reasons because verse 16 says these nations come and they're gathered together in a Hebrew in a place called Armageddon. This is a battle of Armageddon. But before that, you have verse 15. Now, I asked this question on, on Wednesday night. I said, how many of you have red letter Bibles? And a bunch of you raised your hand. And I said, I made a point. I have a red letter Bible, and all of a sudden I'm reading something in red letters. There hasn't been any red letters since the end of chapter three. All black. So what's up with this? With, it carries with it the idea of some of the stuff that we're gonna be studying in the book of Revelation. It is so far out there that the average person would say, you are crazy. Certified, (laughs) bonafide. But here we have a pause, and I think the Lord is speaking and he wants to speak to you and to the church. So he reminds us that this is all gonna unfold. Do you know that all of mainline Roman Catholicism do not take a literal view of the book of Revelation? Do you know that most... um, Mainline Protestants take an allegorical, amillennial view of the book of Revelation. A very small percent of Christianity takes this book literally and seriously. But notice what the Lord says. Behold, 
I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked and see his shame. What does that mean, Dwight? It means hang in there. It means don't give up. It means keep watching. Look at current events like this is important. Things are unfolding as of yesterday. And it's building to a crescendo and how much before that straw breaks a proverbial camel's back. How close are we to the rapture of the church if these things are happening right here, right now? My point with all this is the demonic warfare that's going on to really the most persecuted group of people and that's the Jewish people. Do you know that the Germans could have possibly won the war against Russia? If Hitler would have been diverting all his railroad cars to take Jews to concentration camps instead of sending his men to the Russian front. A lot of people don't know that. He was more concerned with killing Jews than he was winning the war against Russia. And Russia is the one that finally came down and they had bragging rights of uh, doing in Berlin and Adolf Hitler. He was demonic. His top men were sworn enemies of Jewish, totally into the occult. And all the stuff you guys can Google for yourself. Because Satan only has one card to play, only one. Why doesn't he want this information to get to Daniel? Because if they know, they'll know what to do. And so he does not want people to know the word of God and what is going to transpire. And he's, if he can destroy Israel, Jesus said, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, what if there's no Jews to say that? And so that's his warped thinking. Praise the Lord, I know the end of the book and I know what happens to him. And um, let's get back. See, that's what I was gonna cut out last Sunday. <laughs> everything, everything that we just went to. So let's go back to Ezekiel. And um, what Putin really wants in Syria, um, what Putin really wants, what's he doing down there anyway? Well, also within the last 10, 15 years, um, Israel has discovered one of the largest natural gas seven trillion cubic meters off the shores of Haifa. Seven trillion cubic. You know um, Russia's main export? Oil and natural gas. With very little competition in the European Union. They've already signed agreements, Israel has, with Jordan. They're building a pipeline that'll go through Crete into Italy and into Europe. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel 38, in verse 13, Saudi Arabia asks the question, have you come to take a plunder? Have you come to take a spoil? I just take the ter- first two letters off a of spoil. What does it spell? Oil. And they found oil, a very high quality oil, on the Golan Heights. And so why are they involved? Um, they have their eyes on the spoil and... Um, that's what one of the reasons that Putin is Putin has done. I don't think he really wants maybe to be a part of this. The reason I say that is I'm going to put a hook in you. All right, you fishermen, you ever caught a fish that says, "Oh, goody, I'm hooked, and I'm going to get drawn into this boat." <laughs> Let me jump right in. No, there's there's reasons that he's hesitant, but the Lord says no. Over 70, 80 years of the Russian gulag and the millions of Christians um, uh, having no uh, religion whatsoever allowed in Russia. The Lord biding his time. But all of a sudden he says, I've had enough. I'm against you. I think that should be the scariest words in the Bible that God would ever say, I am against you. Instead, he says just the opposite. He says, I'm for you, not against you. Getting a little ahead of myself here. Let's go to what I believe could happen next, and that is to the book of Isaiah, chapter 17. We'll look at one verse. 
Russia is holding up Assad. Assad is the president of Syria. He's been brutally killing his own people for some time. Russia is defending Assad. Assad's capital happens to be Damascus, probably the largest terrorist place, a meeting place in the world. Isaiah 17 verse one has never been fulfilled. It says, the burden against Damascus, this is where Assad, the president of Syria, lives. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will become a ruinous heap. That has never happened. Its claim to fame is that it is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. Jericho argues with him, but either way, it's never been destroyed. But just look at current events. Look at the rhetoric that's taking place. And what's gonna trigger Israel saying, okay, you're bringing nuclear weapons down towards the Golan Heights. By the way, Damascus is only 60 miles away from the Golan. On a clear day, you could actually see it. So what I believe could happen as part of this scenario of Ezekiel 38, bye-bye Damascus. It's foretold. It has to come to pass. And I can actually see how this could happen. I wouldn't be that dogmatic as I am in our, our study here. Back to Ezekiel 38. All right. Pick it up at verse 7. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's talking to these nations that are coming against Israel. Prepare yourself and be ready for, for all your companies that are gathered about and be a guard for them. The word guard is supplier. Russia has supplied Turkey with billions of dollars of arms that they've sold to Turkey. Verse 8 through 16 tells us when this is going to happen. After many days, you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land brought back from the sword. Well, that's 36 and 37. They've been brought back. And have gathered many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They have brought, that have been brought out of the nations, notice plural, so we're not talking about the Babylonian captivity here, which was nation, nations, and now they dwell safely. You will ascend coming like a storm, covering the land with a cloud, and all your troops and peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that a thought will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Some people disqualify this because they say, well, Jerusalem has walls. No, it only has walls around the old city. The rest of it is wide open. Unless you're traveling around Bethlehem, then there's some there. To take a plunder, to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste place that are again inhabited, and a a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Now, Sheba and Dedan, these are two cities in Saudi Arabia today. During the Gulf War, Saudi Arabia allowed our jets to land and refuel in Saudi Arabia when we went after Saddam Hussein in Iraq. So to say the least, I was talking to my friend Elijah Abraham. The only people that um, the Iranians hate more than Israel are the Saudi, are the Saudis. And one of the reasons is because of what they did when they allowed our jets to land there. Plus, they're Saudi Arabians, are Muslim, they are Arabs. That's where the big stone is when they make your pil- pilgrimage as, as, a, as a Muslim. But um, Iran has already hit them with a cruise missile. That was, what, within the last six months? Remember when that took place? That came from Iran. So there's a hatred there, and 
uh, Saudi Arabia is not involved in this war. They're kind of standing on the sidelines saying, um, and the young lions, have you come to take a plunder? They're simply asking questions. And have you gathered your army to take a booty, to carry away silver and gold and take away livestock and goods to a great plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord Gog, on the day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north and many peoples with you and on them riding horses, a great company of a great army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. Notice it will be in the latter days that I will bring you up against my land so that the nations may know my name and I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before our eyes. The Lord himself is going to be the one that reigns judgment just like in Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, The question I get asked most often is why isn't the United States of America involved in this war? Are they anywhere here? Some people say in verse 13, Sheba and Dedan, merchants of Tarshish, which is probably um, England, and all their young lions, um, they make a reference that could be possibly be, be referring to the United States. And we have pulled out of the, the Middle East. We have a small contingency there, but nothing of any importance. And so the question is, if Israel is being supported by America. Um, Do you think possibly Trump has his hands and his plate pretty full right now with everything that's going on in the world and this worldwide um, plague that's affecting literally the whole world? And would we be hesitant to get involved? All the nations come against. So the Lord himself gets involved in verse 22. He says, I'm gonna rain down on these troops that come against Israel uh, and many people who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah to me. And thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations and then they shall know that I am the Lord. Israel has a big time wake up call. Our God is real, and he's fighting, and we, we were goners for sure, and then all of a sudden, they're all gone. And then they will know I am the Lord. That's the war. 39 is the cleanup, and I'm only gonna read one through eight, and then verse 11. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I'm going to turn you around and lead you on and bring you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And I will knock the bow, the word literally is launcher there, out of your right hand and cause your arrows, another word could be translated missiles. Uh, Modern day technology is, I think, Ezekiel best trying to describe them, to fall out of your right hand. You will fall upon the mountains of Israel. You and all your troops and the people who are with you, I will give you to the birds of prey and every sort of the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open fields, for I have spoken, says the Lord. And then I will send fire on Magog, on Russia, and all those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And so I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day that I have spoken of. And again, verse nine we read, but I want to read it again to emphasize the length of time of cleanup. 
Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. Verse 11, this is what's going to happen to Russia. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place. Where? In Israel. In the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers because they will be burying Gog and all the multitudes. Therefore, they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. All right, let's wrap this up this morning. Um, the outcome of this battle is that Russia is buried on the hills of, of Israel. Um, so my closing question, I'm quoting Luke 21, verse 28. Now when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption draws nigh. It's really a very simple question. Either you see these things or you don't. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Remember Jesus said the volume of the book was about him in the psalm this morning? John 13, verse 19. Jesus says, this is concerning Bible prophecy. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. The volume of the book is about Jesus. He's telling us in Ezekiel 36 and 37, I'm gonna bring Israel back into the land against all odds. Did it happen? It happened. Belflower Declaration um, became a nation one day, been there for 72 years. In that time, they've turned it into the Garden of Eden. 36, check it off. 37, check it off. 38, perhaps today, perhaps tomorrow. Then we read, just turn the page of chapter 15. And the Lord, I'm taking you here because I want you to know that the Lord wants you to know these things before they happen. So chapter 15, picking it up in verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that wherever you ask in the name of my father, he will give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And the last verse this morning is Hebrews chapter 10. And again, I'll close with this question. If it's as late as I think it is, so what do we do? What do we do with all this information? Well, Hebrews 10, picking up with verse 23, tells us, It tells us, let us hold fast. Remember one of the signs of the last days is called the apostasy or the falling away? There's gonna be some that are falling away. And then there's a church of Philadelphia. They get it. They're little in strength, but they've kept the word of God, so what does the Lord tell them? Because you've kept my word, I'm gonna keep you from the greatest trial that has ever come upon the world and it will affect the entire world. Nothing has affected the entire world since the flood. But what's going to happen during the tribulation affects the whole world. But what does he say to Philly? I'm gonna keep you from the hour of trial. Well, how in the world is he gonna do that? Well, that's what next Sunday's Bible study is all about. That's enough of a teaser. So let us hold fast. In other words, hang in there. Um, Be watching. Now you know what we're to watch for. He says, but if you don't watch, it's gonna come upon you unexpectedly. He goes on to say, and and, uh, the confession of your hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. 
And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. In other words, love on each other. Encourage one another. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But exhort one another. And so much more, notice what? As you see the day approaching. I'll close with a simple question. My friends, either you see it or you don't. If you do see it, what are you supposed to do? Not forsake fellowship. Don't quit. Don't give in. And a matter of fact, it says do it even that much more if you see the day approaching. Good place to end? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close the prayer. Lord, as we take a little side track from our study in Revelation, I pray, Lord, as we study these chapters out of Ezekiel, we thank you, Lord, that you call us friends and you hold nothing back. You tell us things ahead of time so that when they happen, we'll believe in you. I pray for any, Lord, who don't understand who you are and that the very volume of the book is about you and that their very reason for existing is to have fellowship with you. We thank you so much, Lord, that you paid the price on Calvary's cross that opens the veil. That veil was rent when you died on Calvary's cross and it opened the doors to heaven so now we can have direct access one-on-one with you. So we thank you for the blessed hope and we pray that you would go before us this day and this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. These things before they happen. So chapter 15, picking up in verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that wherever you ask in the name of my father, he will give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And the last verse this morning is Hebrews chapter 10. And again, I'll close with this question. If it's as late as I think it is, so what do we do? What do we do with all this information? Well, Hebrews 10, picking up with verse 23, tells us. It tells us, let us hold fast. Remember one of the signs of the last days is called the apostasy or the falling away? There's gonna be some that are falling away. And then there's a church of Philadelphia. They get it. They're little in strength, but they've kept the word of God. So what does the Lord tell them? Because you've kept my word, I'm gonna keep you from the greatest trial that has ever come upon the world and it will affect the entire world. Nothing has affected the entire world since the flood. But what's going to happen during the tribulation affects the whole world. But what does he say to Philly? I'm gonna keep you from the hour of trial. Well, how in the world is he gonna do that? Well, that's what next Sunday's Bible study is all about. That's enough of a teaser. So let us hold fast. In other words, hang in there. Um, Be watching. Now you know what we're to watch for. He says, but if you don't watch, it's gonna come upon you unexpectedly. He goes on to say, and and, uh, the confession of your hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. In other words, love on each other. Encourage one another. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But exhort one another. And so much more, notice what? As you see the day approaching. I'll close with a simple question. My friends, either you see it or you don't. If you do see it, what are you supposed to do? Not forsake fellowship. Don't quit. Don't give in. And a matter of fact, it says do it even that much more if you see the day approaching. 
Good place to end? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close the prayer. Lord, as we take a little side track from our study in Revelation, I pray, Lord, as we study these chapters out of Ezekiel, we thank you, Lord, that you call us friends and you hold nothing back. You tell us things ahead of time so that when they happen, we'll believe in you. I pray for any, Lord, who don't understand who you are and that the very volume of the book is about you and that their very reason for existing is to have fellowship with you. We thank you so much, Lord, that you paid the price on Calvary's cross that opens the veil. That veil was rent when you died on Calvary's cross and it opened the doors to heaven so now we can have direct access one-on-one with you. So we thank you for the blessed hope and we pray that you would go before us this day and this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.